Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Hi, you're listening to Great Women in Compliance on the Compliance Podcast Network with Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine. I'm Lisa Fine, and today I'm speaking with Danielle Canada. She is Senior Counsel at SABIC, which is a Saudi Basic Industries Corporation based in Houston. She's responsible for company-wide compliance, and she monitors and promotes compliance at SABIC. She also manages the trade compliance team and supervises activities around economic sanctions compliance, export controls, CFIS reviews, and import-export processes. She's been at SABIC for 12 years, but her career in compliance started when she was a Presidential Management Fellow for the U.S. Department of Defense. Before joining SABIC, she was counsel at a large law firm. One thing that's just remarkable is how Danielle's been advocating for women throughout her career. At SABIC, she is also involved with the B20 and is the co-chair of the Integrity and Compliance Task Force. In this, in this role, she is working to give women in the workplace the tools they need to identify and report corrupt and unethical behavior, among other issues. I'm so thrilled that we're able to speak with you, Danielle, right before the B20 and to hear about your work. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here. I'm happy to be talking to you. This is great. So can you tell us a bit about your background in some more detail and how you got into compliance? Sure. So I started my career at the Pentagon and I was there for two years, primarily working on international negotiations and issues that involved defense after the Pentagon, I went to a law firm in Washington, D.C., and I was in the international trade practice there for about seven years and primarily focused on, on trade compliance. When I first joined uh, SABIC as an in-house lawyer in 2008, I was hired to do trade compliance and then over the years, my portfolio broadened from just doing trade compliance to also doing anti-bribery, gifts and hospitality, uh, our supplier due diligence program, supporting our corporate sustainability department. So really a whole range of compliance activities that sort of got added to my portfolio over the years. Yes, it's a pretty large portfolio at this point in time, it sounds like. So. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so, and the B20, and talk a little bit about that. It starts in just a couple of weeks. And can you sure. talk about what the B20 is and your role and SAVIC's role as well? Sure, happy to do that. So every year, the heads of state of the world's 20 largest economies, so the G20, have a, a summit meeting where they discuss mostly international economic issues. This year, and it's a rotating presidency, so this year the, uh, the G20 is hosted by Saudi Arabia. And there's a, there's a business component to the G20 as well, and that is known as the B20 or Business 20. And it's really an opportunity for companies and business leaders from the G20 countries to make policy recommendations 
to the G20 heads of state for them to take back to their home countries and implement as as policy and as law in their home uh, countries. And the idea is to really bring sort of a business perspective to the to the G20 summit and to make sure that the voice of business is really heard by the G20 leaders. I have been working on uh, anti-corruption and integrity issues through the B20 as a SABIC representative to the, to the B20 since about 2013 now. And so this year for us in, in SABIC, because we are a Saudi-based company, um, it's a very exciting year because Saudi Arabia has the presidency of the G20 and thus the presidency of the B20. And so I have the opportunity to serve as co-chair of the B20 Saudi Arabia Integrity and Compliance Task Force. And what the task force aims to do is advance the global anti-corruption agenda, touching on key topics such as regulatory compliance, transparency, and high standards of ethics and integrity. And this year, under the Saudi presidency, one of the B20's priorities is to ensure that all of the work across the task forces is gender sensitive and inclusive of the perspectives of women. And this has been a major consideration for the Integrity and Compliance Task Force, where 39% of the members are women. And we have consciously made the empowerment of women uh, through national anti-corruption plans a priority. So is that part of the, the policy? You have a policy paper? Is that what you're presenting on that specifically? Yeah. So, so basically, um, the, the B20 itself is divided into different task forces that touch on different business topics. And for, so each task force gets to put forward a policy paper and some recommendations that will ultimately go into a communique to the G20 heads of state at their summit in November. And so for my task force, for the Integrity and Compliance Task Force, we put forward uh, three recommendations that will go into, into that G20 communique. So shall I, shall I talk about what those three recommendations are? Sure, that would be, that'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, sure. So um, our first one is that the G20 should pursue a culture of high integrity in the public and private sectors. And to do so, we recommend that the G20 engage with the private sector to implement or improve national anti-corruption plans and to adopt new collective action initiatives. So really to have companies and other stakeholders working together to fight corruption. Um, We also advocate that the G20 should strengthen laws protecting whistleblowers 
and engage with the private sector regarding best practices and whistleblower program management. And finally, under this recommendation about pursuing a culture of high integrity, we also want to ensure that these anti-corruption plans and whistleblower protections empower women to become part of the solution to corruption. And I'll talk a little bit later about how specifically we, we, we were trying to do that. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, all three are really very significant, both in private and private organizations, like where I work and others, and are, are critically important. But I do think that the that last point you're talking about um, is giving women the tools and talking about, you know, how to help with, with uh, gender recognition and that. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about that? Okay. Sure. So one of the... Um, I guess, I guess maybe a little background on why we feel that we should be looking at corruption issues through sort of a gender-focused lens. If you kind of look at experience of women globally, particularly in developing countries, where the supply chains of many of our multinational B20 members are really um, crucial, um, in these countries, women face in their role as caregivers and in their role as you know, the support mechanism for the family, women face um, corruption in their daily lives. It could be anything from trying to get their children registered in school to getting healthcare appointments set up for their family members, to getting access to public housing and other public services. And so they, so what tends to happen is that women who are living in these societies where corruption is such a sort of routine part of daily life, um, when they enter the workforce or when they start businesses, when they become entrepreneurs, when they go work in companies that are supplying major multinationals, they sometimes have the impression that from, from their life experience that corruption is kind of just the way it is and that there's not much that they can do about it in, in their society or in their work life. And so, what we are doing through the B20 is our member companies have done an excellent job this year of coming up with training materials to really empower women to be part of the solution to, uh, to corruption. So we are, we've developed some training materials that our member companies can use in their own supply chains, both to train their, their employees on um, how, to, you know, how, to, how to sort of look at, at corruption through a gendered lens, and then also to train their supply chain partners on how to be more aware of when bribes are being solicited and what they can do about it, both in terms of resisting uh, resisting the solicitation, 
as well as becoming whistleblowers or utilizing available channels to report corruption when it's happening. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of times when I think about people raising issues or whistleblowing, I mean, I always, the first thing I think about is that people are courageous when, you know, to do to a lot of times to reach out mm-hmm. and to do this. It's, it seems like for the women that are do, that, that we're talking about and just generally with supply chain, it takes even more courage and information and tools. And that seems like what you all are starting to provide first through the recommendation and then second through follow-up. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, with that in mind, what do you see as the most important steps in, you know, for the, for the women who want to report issues or, you know, advocacy through the tools? Right. So I think, you know, the, the most important step for us is first just raising the awareness and giving women the understanding that what's happening is not right and that they can do something about it, that they can really be empowered to do something about it. And so the B20 is committed to collaborating with G20 members and uh, civil society to accelerate the effort to enlist women in the fight against corruption. And so with our training materials, we're really starting to educate and train women to resist and report solicitation. So the first step is to really recognize when it's happening. Um, and then and then once they do have that recognition that it is happening, to understand some basic ways that they can uh, they can resist. So just to give a really simple example, when they're being asked for an improper payment, you know, we're, we're sort of teaching um, them to just say, you know, I'm, I'm actually not allowed to give payments, you know, directly, but we can, we can do a, a transfer to your, um, the ministry's account. You know, can I get that information? Can I get your supervisor's name? Can I come back with my supervisor so that we make sure that we're doing this properly? So we, what we want to do is kind of give women just some, just some easy ways to kind of respond when they're when they're kind of being put, in, being put into that situation where they're being solicited for a bribe and they may not know what to do. They may not know how to resist it. They may not know, you know, that they can resist it. And so we're kind of giving them the, those tools, and then. And then as sort of a first step, and then the next step is training them on how to actually report when solicitation is happening. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to me when I think about that, you know, the, the first step is, is how to handle it when, when it's occurring, as opposed to being just somebody who is, is you know, passively watching or, you know, mm-hmm. about it. But, you know, the, the first struggle is actually being the person present for it and, and how to, um, you know, react. Right. So I guess another thing that I was wondering is as you were working on this and it obviously is a huge project, what's is what is there anything you learned that surprised you or something that surprised you the most? I guess what I would say, and this was a really pleasant surprise, is that when we sort of first proposed doing this project, so many of our member companies came forward and said that they wanted to participate and that they felt like looking at corruption through a gendered lens was really a gap in their programs because, you know, every big multinational already has 
anti-bribery training. Many already do capacity building training for their supply chains, for their smaller, the smaller companies in their supply chain who may not have access to the types of anti-bribery training materials and programs that bigger companies have. But everyone seemed to be doing this from sort of a very formulaic approach, right? Which is like, this is bribery, this is wrong, don't do it. Um, but, but what they weren't doing is really addressing the specific needs of women especially when you have so many women in developing countries who are working in, in, their, in the supply chains, who are entrepreneurs starting businesses, who are really coming into the workforce with a, a desire to, be, to make an impact and, um, and do well. But maybe, you know, coming from a perspective where their societies are so male-dominated, the political system is, seems to kind of be stacked against them, that they may not really fully understand that they can be empowered to be part of the solution to corruption. So I would say that the thing that really surprised me the most is that our B20 member companies all seemed to recognize that this was a gap. In, um, in their compliance programs and that by addressing gender or addressing corruption through a gendered lens, it could really raise the bar and make a significant contribution to improving integrity standards in their supply chains. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And that's um, I mean, something I haven't thought as much about and this conversation has been great for that with me. Is there anything else that we haven't talked about about um, either the the paper and the recommendations or the advocacy for women that I may have missed while we were talking right now that were particularly important to you or highlights. Um, sure. So, so I sort of really just focused on the women's issue in the policy paper, but but there were other things going on with the Integrity and Compliance Task Force and the policy paper as well. Really, in addition to this overarching recommendation about pursuing a culture of high integrity and empowering women to become part of the solution to corruption, we also had a recommendation that the G20 leverage emerging technologies to manage risks relating to corruption and fraud. You know, really came about because there, there are so many new technologies out there on the market right now. Companies are, are, are using them, but really we, what, we also, what we also want is for the G20 governments to adopt consistent digital identity standards and systems to enhance transparency and beneficial ownership and improve third-party risk management in the private sector. Um, there was also an interest in seeing the G20 develop digital public national registers to increase transparency around beneficial ownership information and to launch public-private partnerships to support the development of new technologies. Because again, as I said, there are a lot of new technologies out there. Different companies are utilizing them. And there was a feeling that government should recognize this and support it because it could have really, really advanced the ball on 
um, detecting corruption and fraud and, and preventing it. So that was a, that's a recommendation in our paper. And then the final recommendation is that the G20 governments should enhance integrity and transparency in public procurement. And so really looking at this across the entire public procurement life cycle and to give, for the governments to give incentives to reward high standards of ethical conduct in uh, public procurement. Um, so, so those are, those are, that really sort of wraps up all of our, our recommendations. So it's not just about women, but that is definitely, women are, are definitely a focus. Right. Well, I think that that part, I mean, that, the, the, that's fantastic, especially, I mean, the women focus, obviously, through what we do in the podcast and through other things are things that are, you know, really near and dear to us and many of the people that are listening. Um, and one of the other things that just to change the topic a little bit is when we spoke initially, um, I asked you a bit about your perspective on working for a global company like Savic. And I just wanted to get a little bit of your sense of what advice would you give to women who are starting to work with a Saudi organization or negotiations discussions with either Saudi, Middle East organizations, or really generally from your global standpoint, being that it's unique. Mm -hmm. Sure. Okay. So, I mean, I can start with, with Saudi Arabia. I've been working in a Saudi company since 2008, and I've really seen remarkable change in the country in that time. And um, Saudi Arabia's businesses have taken important steps to promote gender equality and empower women to rise to leadership position. And I guess what I would say is that when I, you know, when I first started working in Saudi in 2008, women's employment levels were, were much, much lower than they are now. So women have really, in the past 10 years or so, come into the workforce in, in greater and greater numbers. Um, women are graduating university and being educated in greater numbers. And the Saudi government has a, taken a lot of steps to really promote the education of women. When we spoke a few days ago, I asked you about your perspective on working for a global company like Sabbath. What advice would you give to women who are starting to work with Saudi organizations or in negotiations or discussions with either Saudi or Middle East organizations or just from a global perspective? So I guess I'll start start with this, this with Saudi Arabia. So what I've seen over the past 10 years or so working with a company and, and I'm in uh, Saudi Arabia's businesses have taken important steps to promote gender and to rise to leadership positions. Over the last 10 years or so, the, the government has fought um, to increase women's employment and to really support education of women. And so now what you're seeing are entire universities that are dedicated to women, women graduating in very high numbers and entering the workforce. And really, there's just been a tremendous thing in the country when you see the participation of women in economic life today, as opposed to even five or 10 years ago. It's really, um, it's really increased a lot. And with the Saudi 
presidency of the B20 this year, there has been a real emphasis on making sure that women do have a seat at the table and that women are heavily represented in the B20 programming and that women are chairing or co-chairing task forces and really out at the forefront so that, um, you know, the gender perspective is absolutely taken into account in the recommendations that the B20 is making to the G20 leaders this year. So I guess maybe turning a little bit to my personal perspective, working for a Saudi organization, I would say that it's been, as a woman, it's been entirely positive. Um, When I first started going to Saudi about 10 or 12 years ago, I, you know, really did not know what to expect. And I had a lot of sort of preconceived notions about what it was going to be like. And actually what I have found is that the Saudis and in the Middle East in general, I think, you know, women have a special place in society. Women are really almost put on a pedestal, sort of looked upon very, very fondly. And as a woman in business there, I've always had really positive interactions with my colleagues. I've always had really great engagement with, uh, with my Saudi colleagues and with colleagues throughout the Middle East region. And I really, um, I have such an affinity for, for the region at this point. And I really think that as a woman, it's a, it's actually like a great, it's actually a great um, place to, to, to do business. And in a lot of ways, it's much more progressive and much more welcoming than a lot of other places in the world that I've worked or been. So I have really, I have only good things to say. Yeah, I think that that's great. I think one of the things that, you know, I think about in every, you know, we do in in any country or any place is basically the cultural differences that can bring us together as much as, you know, can be of concern. And I think it's really, you know, great to hear your perspectives and others from all over the world about, you know, successes that, you know, and and growth of experiences that come from that. So before Mm -hmm. we close off, is there anything else that you want to talk about that or just mention briefly before we, we... and so, I mean, maybe just since I am co-chairing this integrity and compliance task force this year, I would really just say that, you know, it's sort of a key message that our task force wants to get across and that we will be advocating for at the B20 summit at the end of October, as well as, at, you know, to the G20 leaders at their summit in November is that for companies across the globe, responsible business conduct has become a key value and principle and companies are putting integrity as one of the key priorities on their agenda. And I think that what we've seen through the integrity and compliance task force this year is that we've had, we have over hundred members from all of the G20 countries and our members are really enthusiastic and the, com- the member companies are 
putting, you know, they're, they're putting forward resources, right? So they're, they're dedicating time. They were dedicating travel budgets before COVID to put their compliance personnel out there to really make the integrity and compliance task force a success and to get the integrity message onto the agenda for the G20 leaders. So I think it's really a testament to the fact that companies are really willing to, you know, to to put resources out there to advance the global anti-corruption agenda, to um, advance topics like regulatory compliance, transparency, and high standards of ethics and integrity, because they do see the business value and the benefit of um, building, you know, a healthy integrity culture in companies and in the business environment and how that can lead to economic growth. Um, Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that that's really helpful. And I think also those of you that are listening right now, um, definitely um, look up the information as this is upcoming from the policy paper and the advocacy, because it can mm-hmm. also help from, from a business standpoint for to, to look and see, look, this work is being done globally and in the G20 and the B20, and it really can help support the work that, you know, compliance officers are doing on a day-to-day basis. Um, yeah. I think it's exactly. really, yeah, I really think that that, you know, it, it's, we are, as, as people doing ethics and compliance, a global community um, and anything we can do to support, I mean, ultimately, all of us really just want our organizations to do the right thing. And I mean, I think it's fabulous what, what you have done personally as part of this and the tremendous amount of work. And I just wanted to say thank you so much for uh, joining me um, on the Great Women in Compliance podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.